Good morning, church fam. I'm so glad that you're here worshiping with us today. Whether you're here in person or online, I pray that you have an amazing encounter with God this morning as we sing to Him and learn from His Word. I want to draw your attention to an opportunity in which we can pray together as a church family. I don't know about you all, but in these times of uncertainty and craziness, we all might feel a little helpless or discouraged, out of control, and we just don't know what to do. But I want to encourage you that there is something that we can do. We can pray. God wants his church to pray. He wants us to cry out to him. And because of that, I want to invite you all to join us for 30 days of prayer. Beginning October 4th and going all the way until November 2nd, each week we will have a different theme. And within those weeks, we will have a daily prayer prompt for you all. We're going to use email and social media to engage everyone for this 30 days of prayer. As we continue to regather, I know that this will be a great way for us to unite all for God's glory. David often prayed and even wrote songs of praise when times were uncertain for him. In Psalm 45, David worships God and praises him for his provision in the midst of difficulty. David writes in the first three verses, I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. And why? Because God is good. He is Jehovah Jireh. He is sovereign. Everything that was going on then and is going on now is not a surprise to him. So let us praise him for being God, even when it's tough. So let me invite you to stand up and rise up as a church body and let's praise his name together. Let's leave the troubles of the world outside right now and worship God for the great things that he has done in the past, that he's doing now, and will continue to do forever and ever. Well, good morning. Let's worship the living God together. Amen. See what I 
things. Psalms 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. 
None can truly comprehend the extent of how great He truly is, but we know that as we begin where we are and become more like Him, He is constantly molding us into His image. In that process, we come to learn more and more about Christ, our firm foundation, our cornerstone upon which we all rely. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting with verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. 1 Peter 2, 4-6 through Here, Peter references Isaiah 28:16. He goes on to say in verses 9-10, through But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9-10. Our strength, our hope, our worth is not found in us, but in Christ Jesus who lives in us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So then, let us continue to lift our praise to the one who is worthy, Christ Jesus, our cornerstone.
shall come with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone. Faultless stand before the throne. Praise you, Lord Jesus, our cornerstone. Lord, you are our hope, our living hope. Can we sing it together? How great the chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation I turned to heaven And spoke your name into the night Then through the darkness your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished, the end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine? So great a mercy, what heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. Come on now, lift it up. The cross has spoken. declared the grave 
living hope. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. News Network, where we take a bite out of history. We go anywhere in time to bring you the biggest stories. We go now to a scene from everyday life. In this gym, teams are being chosen for a competition with a variety of events. Do you ever feel like you are always the last to be picked for a team? Do you ever feel like you are never the fastest runner? You're too young, too small, too this, or not enough that? Today we learn that God chooses the unexpected for his team. He wants you on his team. We go now to our reporters who have traveled back in time. First we go to Wanda Hirinder. Wanda? Yes, Conchita. I am standing here with David, who just defeated the nine-foot warrior Goliath. David, may I ask how you, a small shepherd boy, were able to defeat a giant? God, through God's power. The giant was mocking the one true living God, so I just knew I had to stand up. And I knew God would show up because it was his righteous cause. So even though I'm a small boy, God worked through me for his glory. It is easy to see that God would have to be the power behind this victory. Thank you, David. We go now to Doug Upstory. Doug? Yes, Wanda. I'm here with Moses, the leader of the Israelites. Moses, sir, how were you able to defeat the Egyptian army and deliver your people out of slavery? God. God sent the ten plagues. God parted the Red Sea. God provided for us in the desert. It was all God's power. I understand that you did not want to lead when God called you. You don't feel that you speak well. That's true. I'm not a good speaker. I really struggle. But God chose me anyway. Anytime we met any obstacle along the way that no human could overcome, God overcame it for his glory. You certainly have seen God work in amazing ways. Thank you, Moses. And now we go to Olive News. Olive? I'm here with the Apostle Paul. Let me ask you, sir, how did you go from being the persecutor of Christians to being persecuted for Christ yourself? God, by God's power, Seeing the risen Christ, my life changed. Now I know Jesus is the Son of God. You have traveled all over the world. How did you reach all these different nations with the gospel? God. Before you believed in Jesus, you arrested and jailed so many Christians, and now you yourself are jailed for following Christ. But even in jail, you endure and continue to share the gospel. How do you persevere? God, I rejoice that I am counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Amazing. All of this by the power of God for his glory. Now to Sheila Uncover It. Thank you, Olive. I'm here on the island of Patmos with the Apostle John. John, you went from being a humble fisherman to one of Jesus' closest disciples. You followed him for three years. You watched Jesus die a brutal death on the cross, and then you saw him risen from the dead. And now you are exiled here on the island of Patmos just for following him. How do you persevere? God, through God's power, for his glory. Let me ask you about this. Some struggle with God sending his own son, Jesus, to save us, then allowing him to be killed. Why would God allow his own son to be killed? For you, for all of us. 
So all who choose to repent and believe can be forgiven by his grace, his free gift. Wow, and there is no better gift. Back to you, Conchita. Now we go back to that competition we joined earlier. Rope climbing is the next event. Choose someone to represent your team. With both teams tied, this last event will determine the winner. Brody, the young man chosen last shows he is truly a gifted climber. Seems the competitors looked on the outside and saw a small young boy instead of a beast of a climber. Como pues? Go, Brody, go. So who the world may think is a foolish choice, God uses for his glory. God can work through anyone. God often chooses the unexpected to show his glory. He may choose a small boy to defeat a giant, a man nervous about speaking to lead the greatest exodus of all time, a person hostile toward the cause of Christ to become its greatest missionary, a common fisherman to become a fisher of men. No one is unimportant to God. We can know that God sees us, knows us, loves us, and calls us to serve him for his glory. Praise God. I'd like to thank all our reporters. I'm Conchita Morales, and we'll see you next time right here somewhere in time.
ransom paid at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied. The Wisconsin State Journal surveyed the nation's largest corporations for unusual interviews with job applicants. And here are some of the responses they got. There was a guy who challenged the interviewer to an arm wrestle. It was an applicant who interrupted the questioning to phone her therapist for advice. A candidate who muttered, Would it be a problem if I was angry most of the time? And a balding candidate who excused himself and then returned wearing a full hairpiece. I think we all want to make a good impression, certainly. Uh, After meeting someone, you don't want them to think, what a loser that guy is. And so it's, it's really shocking to hear God describe his own message as foolish and weak. To call the gospel and the messengers of the gospel silly or despicable. Well, that's where we're at in our study through 1 Corinthians, this letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church that he founded in the city of Corinth. And then after a couple of years of absence, the church uh, had a number of problems. They were struggling. They were in conflict with one another. Uh, They were taking sides over their favorite preachers, and they had a lot of questions and some doctrinal issues, and uh, Paul writes this letter to correct that, and uh, that's why we call this series through 1 Corinthians Corrected. Uh, This church was uh, uh, in a society that looked for status and significance and acceptance, and and they were concerned about trying to impress their culture, this church was. They, They wanted to look, uh, they wanted to fit in and not look foolish. Remember, Corinth as a city was great and wealthy. Uh, It was a center of trade and travel and business in the Roman world. Uh, It was famous for producing brass, among other things, and uh, people went to Corinth. They traveled there to spend money and to enjoy themselves Sports were big, the, the, the city hosted the Isthmian Games, and uh, any sexual pleasure could be found in Corinth. Um, 
we'll get to that later in this letter, uh, in our study through this. The population at that time numbered about 700,000, and at least 300,000 of those were slaves. And uh, so you had the very, very rich, and you had the very, very poor, and not a lot of people in between, really. The markets swarmed with sailors and traders and soldiers and athletes in training, gamblers and artists and officials and business people, uh, the wealthy and educated along with the beggars and the slaves. Uh, Julius Caesar, when he conquered the city, he populated it with Roman war veterans. And of course, the Roman army was there with their shiny armor and uh, sharp swords. The city became the political capital of the province. And they were proud, as a culture, of, of their uh, intellectual interests, their, their arts and education and philosophy. This was a famous, affluent, powerful, important city. And so the, the problem, one of the, church, the, one of the problems the church had was, how are we going to influence this culture? How are we going to be noticed in this world? How are we going to get the attention, as followers of Jesus, how are we going to get the attention of the intellectual, the influential, the rich, the dominant culture that surrounds us? Well, our, our focus this morning, let me summarize it in these words from, uh, as our passage from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. And that does not want to work. And that is foolishness and weakness is God's strategy to save the world. Foolishness and weakness is the strategy of God. It's not armies, it's not money, it's not political power, it's not celebrity preachers, it's not Fortune 500 companies or social media influencers or lavish church buildings or Supreme Court justices. It's foolishness and weakness. Thank you, my brother. And so, just test it out. Yeah, that one doesn't work so well either. It's foolish and weak, so it's perfect. Last week, we ended up at verse 17 of chapter 1, where Paul says, if you make human smarts and status and style important, you empty the gospel of its power. Uh, so if you aim at trying to impress people, you, you, uh, the, the good news then becomes ineffective. And yet our country, to be honest, let's just stick with our country, uh, has many churches whose strategy is to entice people with promises of success, to entice people with uh, facilities and to attract them with personalities and astonish them with spectacular experiences. And that's the exact opposite of God's strategy. Uh, it, it's sometimes tough to know where to draw the line. Back in, I think it was 2008, the church I was pastoring, uh, we had a team that was uh, planning a parenting conference. And uh, after they uh, worked on that for a month or two, they met with me to discuss where that plan was going, and they uh, were very excited to say, we have John and Kate Goslin coming to be the, like the, the, the keynote attraction here. Now, uh, at that point in time, uh, John and Kate Plus 8 was a reality show that was hugely popular uh, and uh, garnering a lot of attention. And I said, well, are they Christians? And they said, well, they, they, they said, we've heard that they are. And I said, well, I'd like to you know, get a statement of faith from them and, uh, and, a, uh, and uh, a testimony. 
get that for next time. So we met together again, and, and uh, they, the Goslins hadn't been... Uh, Hadn't produced anything uh, along that line yet, although uh, my planning team was a little discouraged to, to see. They, they did have a list of other things that they were uh, requiring, a certain type of limousine and armed security and so on. And I said, well, we really need that doctrinal statement before I go. I said, well, don't worry. They're not like the keynote speaker. We, we have all of our people that, uh, doing them. They're kind of the draw. They're the attraction. And we're going to have thousands of people come for this conference. And I said, great, but I, I want to see a doctrinal statement. So uh, another month or so went by and, and uh, um, we had another meeting and they, we got a, a very short email that gave, I guess, a kind of a testimony that said, uh, uh, you know, be kind and uh, uh, be honest and communicate well and, and uh, uh, that was about it. Um, and I said, you know, this really isn't going to fly. This is concerning to me. And I know that we're not going to get as many people show up if we don't have uh, this kind of a big attraction. But let's pull out of this contract. And, and the team agreed completely uh, with that. And, and thankfully, the Lord spared us because unfortunately, just within a month or so of that time, that, that family kind of blew apart and uh, a very public uh, separating and, and Fortunately, I thank the Lord, our church was not part of that because that all happened about the time they would have been headlining at our Christian parenting conference. And, and this whole concept of if we get this big name celebrity and draw people in in this way, that's the opposite of God's strategy. It's the opposite of it. Uh, so, so what is God's strategy? Well, well Paul, as, as we continue here, look at verses 18 and 19. You're going to have to switch this for me. So for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So, so basically the church only has one message and it's Jesus. And, and the Corinthian church wanted to downplay that message of the cross. Because uh, they knew it's not going to connect with our culture of power and influence and wisdom. Uh, and, and by the way, you can have a very nice, respectable religion without the cross, but you can't have Christianity. And that's where the Corinthians were, were messed up. And now, understand, the cross has been so domesticated in our culture by the jewelry and by uh, wall decorations and steeples that I don't think we can appreciate how absolutely offensive the cross uh, was, uh, how horrific it was. Uh, crucifixion as a form of, of, of uh, death was never used on Roman citizens. They were too good for that. Couldn't, couldn't use it on a Roman citizen. Uh, it was only for the dregs of society. It was the most degradating, degrading form of punishment. Uh, Fleming Rutledge uh, says in her wonderful work, she says, uh, crucifixion was specifically designed to be the ultimate insult to personal dignity. The last word in humiliating and dehumanizing treatment, degradation was the whole point. That's what the cross was about, absolute humiliation. Crucifixion was excruciatingly painful and agonizingly slow, torturous death, but never forget that the cross was about shame and dehumanization. The condemned was hung naked in public and viciously mocked and insulted by everyone who passed by and the body left to be eaten by scavengers. That God would send his son to die in this way was inconceivable. And Paul says the message to this cross brings about two reactions. Foolishness or saving power. 
Foolishness is saving power. Those who can't accept that God would work in this way, uh, who reject the message of the cross as foolish, he says they are perishing. That's a present middle participle, meaning that these are people going toward destruction. Uh, This is an ongoing process describing those who are perishing day after day. If you are without Christ, if the cross has not transformed your life, you are in a state of perishing, dying a little bit every day, basically. And the sign that a person is perishing spiritually is that he or she will look at the cross and think it is unnecessary, it's absurd, it's senseless, it's ridiculous. But for those who receive God's message, they are the ones being saved, he says. Now this is a present participle, meaning that final salvation is still future. Remember, there's a past, present, future uh, aspect of salvation. Uh, Those whose trust is in the sacrifice of Christ alone uh, on the cross uh, have been saved from the penalty of sin once for all. That's the past aspect of salvation. Now in the present, those who have put their trust in Christ, you you are now being saved from the power of sin, uh, meaning through Jesus, sin does not have to dominate you or me. We can say no. And when we fail and we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our sin. And, and, and then there's the day coming in the future when we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. That for all of us who trust in Jesus, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And for us, for us this message is power. Uh, your reaction to the king who died on the cross reveals whether you are perishing or you are being saved. And Paul continues, uh, notice the next uh, verse 20, 20 and 21. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So God is shattering the wisdom of the world. He's frustrating the scholarly thinker. Uh, and that does not mean that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Not at all. That's not what Paul is saying. Uh, he's calling out men and women who think that they have such brain power that they don't need God. Who think that uh, human wisdom can lead them to salvation, lead them uh, to God in that way. Uh, and, and Paul recognizes that his people there in Corinth are being overwhelmed by their culture who thinks that they have everything figured out. And uh, Paul's not anti-intellectual. Paul himself is an intellectual, uh, one of the greatest thinkers of his generation, and he's not Uh, anti-rhetoric. He uses masterful rhetoric right here. Uh, Paul is saying God uses preaching not because of its great rhetoric or intellect, but because it announces God's promise and his power. And that's not what the world is looking for, but that's how God himself works. And so what is this church in Corinth supposed to do? How how are they supposed to minister to those who are looking for wisdom and power? How is our church, how is any church of Jesus Christ supposed to minister to our world that looks for pretty much these same things? Well, there are two strategies to this foolishness and weakness. Two strategies for changing the world through foolishness and weakness. And the first is this, that we focus on Christ crucified. 
Uh, that shouldn't be shocking. He's already said it. But notice uh, what more he says in verses 22 through 25. Uh, he says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This week I watched uh, three hours of debates between two Oxford professors. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of at least one. One was Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, uh, and the other was John Lennox, uh, also an Oxford professor at the time, who's a mathematician, a philosopher, and a Christian. Uh, uh, throughout one of the debates, I mean, we got, a, we got this time that's filled with scientific, philosophical, historical arguments about the existence of God. And, and after about an hour and 40 minutes of that, Lennox says, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ constitutes the central evidence upon which I base my faith. And Dawkins, I, he's clearly a bit exasperated with this. Uh, and it's like, here, here Lennox has presented some kind of a case for some kind of a God who adjusted the laws of the universe. And he said, and then suddenly, uh, we come down to the resurrection of Jesus. And Dawkins says, it's so petty, it's so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe. And then Dawkins, and he says this more than once, he says, couldn't a creator God think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive? See, he says, this message, you're trotting out this resurrection of Jesus and this crucifixion, and this is so unworthy of the cosmos. It's so foolish and weak. And don't you think that if there was a God, he could come up with a better plan than this one that you're putting out there? And that's the kind of attitude that the people of Corinth had about the good news. I think it's the kind of attitude that people in our world have to the gospel. And, and so the church of Corinth was looking to soften or avoid the message so they'd be more acceptable in their culture. And, and Paul says, don't, don't do that. I know your city. Uh, you're made up of Jews and Greeks. And you've got Jews who are looking for miraculous evidence of God and Greeks who are trying to find God through wisdom. Uh, but our message isn't that at all. Our message is the cross, God on a cross. And this becomes a problem for Jews who are interested in a God of power, one who's omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent and immutable. And in the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, um, God is spoken of as being almighty 333 times. So that, that's the picture of God. He's the almighty one. They love the, the great work of God in creation and his deliverance through Moses and Joshua and the exploits of King David and King Solomon. And they love the amazing prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Daniel. These are great heroes. And that's what the Jews are looking for, this God of miraculous power. And he says, then the Greeks, they're, they're renowned for their, for their wisdom. They produce the great thinkers of the age whose, whose philosophies still influence our culture today. The big three were Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who all lived in the 4th and 5th centuries before Christ. They all talked about God. Socrates believed that we had an eternal soul that pointed him to this God that we could not know. Uh, his student was, was Plato, and Plato spoke of the gods, not just one, but the gods. And, and, and he said, we can only talk about God in the negative because uh, we can only say what we don't know about God and not what we do know about who he is because we don't know who he is. And his student was Aristotle, who devised the theory of the unmoved mover. 
And the Greeks loved this kind of speculation and rational thought and, and philosophy. And now, rational thinking is good. As the people of God, we can't be anti-scientific. We can't be anti-intellect. Uh, that, that's not what God calls us to do. He gave us a mind to think. What we must not do is think that we can reach salvation in that way. Or, or that this trumps what God says. And... Uh, God created us to use our brains, and Paul says, here's the problem. Some people want miracles and explosive power, and others want impressive wisdom and intellect, but the real message isn't about that at all. It's Christ crucified. Jesus is the wisdom and power of God, and the world sees that as weak and foolish. God wants it that way. That's his strategy. The birth of God's son seems like a foolish story. I mean, shouldn't God's son be born in a palace? If he's going to come to this cosmic speck of dust, as Dawkins says, wouldn't he be born in a palace, not uh, you know, with satin pillows and silk sheets and an imported crib? But no, th- this got born in a barn surrounded by straw and manure and animals, wrapped in an ordinary cloth and placed in a feed bin. His mother is a peasant girl, uh, his adoptive father a carpenter. It's crazy and ridiculous, but in that stable, the word became flesh and lived among us. God came down. God's kingdom was founded on the weakest link of all, a baby. And Jesus was rejected and abandoned and shamed and executed and considered a loser. And anyone who follows him would also be seen as a loser. But when losers like us follow a loser like him, we find blessing beyond what any human mind can ask or imagine. We, we cannot, we must not be ashamed to make Jesus our focus. For when we are truest to Jesus, we are most offensive to the world. Uh, I, I think that that's the concern. This, this seems to be such a basic truth, but I want to ask you, why is the church in the United States of America getting this so wrong so often? It's Christ crucified is our message, is our aim, is our goal. Now, that's the first strategy. The second strategy is to brag on God. It's to boast in the Lord alone. Now, this is, so, this is such an anti-American sentiment because we're kind of a braggy, boasty people. We boast about all kinds of things. But, but the, the call is to brag on God, not, not on our nationality, not on our might, not on our status or wealth or education, and not to view anyone else, regardless of who they are or what they've done, as less than us. And I think that's a big problem in the church today is that we look at others who do not believe and we look at others who do not behave and we look at others who are different than us but they're all made in God and we see them as less than and that is so contrary to the gospel, to the good news. And so we must brag on God. We must boast in the Lord alone. Look at verses 26 to 31. We'll we'll finish out the chapter. Verse 26. Brothers, brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So so Paul reminds the, the church that very few of them were big shots when they became Christians. Now, there was one guy for sure, Erastus is his name, and you go to Corinth today, and you can see his inscription on a paving stone, Erastus, commissioner of public works. 
But many in the church, maybe most in the church, were unknown, insignificant uh, in terms of their status in society, disenfranchised, they were poor, they were slaves. The ancient philosopher Celsus described Christians as ignorant, uncultured, uneducated. He said they are, quote, like a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest, or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp, or worms convening in mud. Now, that's how Christians were described in the, in the early days of the church. Now, how did God end up with those kind of folks? How did he get stuck with the leftovers, the undrafted players? Well, he didn't get stuck. He chose them. He chose them. That, that's God's strategy. And he filled up his team with many no one else would want. Why? Well, look at verse 28 and 29. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God uses the foolish and weak to shame those whose pride rests on their power, rests on their power and intellect. That's God's strategy so that the world can know that we are saved by grace and not by merit. That none of us deserves the salvation of God. It's all of grace. There's nothing in our, us that merits the love and the mercy of God. That's God's point. We have nothing to brag about except God alone. So instead of being able to be arrogant about our intellect, our beauty, our power, our success, there's nothing in ourselves over which to brag other than that God himself created us. We are in his image. And so if I'm going to brag on God, what that means is I'm going to humble myself before him. Uh, it means that I bow in worship before him. It means that I offer him praise and thanks for everything in my life. It means that I don't take pride in me, but in the God who made me in his image and gave me purpose. And Paul concludes this portion, verses 30 and 31, and says, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. And so bragging on God means that I'm always pointing to Jesus. And that's why I've made this commitment for all these years of my life to never preach a sermon, never teach a class, uh, lead a Bible study where I do not point to Jesus as the only way. That's the only place in which we have boasting because it's out of the Father's great love to us that he sent his Son. And it must always be about him and not about us. It's not wrong for Christians to have status. It's not wrong for Christians to have titles or money or power. It's that we must never think of these things as the source of our strength, our worth, our weight of victory, the measure of success, or the means of salvation. My value comes not from what I make of myself, but from the fact that God made me himself in his image. My value comes from the fact that God loved me so much that he gave his only son. That, that's my value. So the world says that certain things are significant and this is what it means to be successful. And we need to ignore that to the extent of, because if our goal is to impress others into the kingdom, we will always fail. And I have to confess to you that I have a struggle sometimes to know where that line is. Of where, is this about trying to impress people? Is this about trying to, to uh, attract people? Or is this about the gospel, the good news? And, and maybe that line isn't always clear. And some, for some people it's different than others. We're not going to ship in snow and have a sledding contest here in Texas, okay? We're not, we're not going to uh, fly in Santa Claus on a helicopter. I, I, there's, I draw a line some places there. But we must both 
boast in the Lord alone. Uh, see, here, here, just notice this. God's battle plan for the church is unimpressiveness. That, that's so hard for this American heart to hear, isn't it? Because we want to be impressive. We want to be powerful. And yet that's God's battle plan. And not to be waged in any other way, but it's foolish and weak and unpretentious. In the year that uh, he was elected president, Jimmy Carter was one of three men invited to speak at the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. 17,000 delegates there. And uh, uh, the, the other uh, people invited to speak were Billy Graham. He was going to go first. Carter was going to go last. And uh, in the middle was this truck driver nobody had ever heard of. And each of them had five minutes to speak. So um, Carter was sitting there next to the truck driver when Billy Graham got up to speak. And, and uh, <laughs> the truck driver turned to Carter and he said, I've never done this in my life. I am scared. To, I don't want to do this. And uh, Carter tried to encourage him. And they listened as Billy Graham gave a powerful talk. And it was the truck driver's turn, and he, he got up, and he stumbled to the microphone a little bit, and he mumbled into it, and he said, I was always drunk. The only people I knew were men like me who hung around the bars in town. And he described how someone told him about Jesus, and he became a Christian. And, and, and as he got into a Bible study with other men and began to understand more about the faith, he knew that he had to share this gospel with other people. And since he felt most comfortable in a bar room, he decided he would talk to the people in the bar room where his friends were. From the very first time he went into the bar room, the bartender told him he was very bad for business and he should leave, but the truck driver was not discouraged and he kept on in his mission. And he said, at first they treated me like a joke. But then they started asking questions, and when I couldn't answer one, I would go and get the answer and then come back with it. And 14 of my friends became Christians. And Carter said, that truck driver's speech was the highlight of the convention. I don't believe anyone who was there will ever forget that five-minute fumbling statement or that anyone will remember what I or even Billy Graham had to say. Through the weakness of a baby, God arrived on our speck of cosmic dust. And through the foolishness of the cross, God wins. That's his strategy to change the world. May we as a church never depart from it. May we preach Christ crucified and boast in the Lord alone. Let's pray. God, we need your strength to accomplish this. We need to be assured of your purpose and your power to be your church in this time and place. Fill us with your spirit. Enliven us with the truth of Jesus Christ who is crucified, dead, and buried, and rose again. And we praise you in his powerful and precious name. Amen.
that righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can see.
receive this benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Amen.